Welcome to the Crypto Assets and Blockchain Podcast. I'm Gordon Einstein. Um, I'm happy to be here. I'll say something personal before we get started, which is I studied in Germany twice over 25 years ago, before all of you were born. So it was an offshore in Berlin, and I won't embarrass myself by the city of German, but I had no idea exactly 25 years later talking about blockchain. So it's kind of interesting. I have to give this disclaimer in the United States. I assume you all know this, but just to be clear, I'm a lawyer. I'm not your lawyer, probably, yet. Nice to meet you. I'm also not with FINMA, SEC, Singapore, or FCA. So, was anyone confused about any of this before I started? Okay, let's take one big holistic look at everything. The why do we care about establishing or not establishing a global regulatory structure for crypto assets? Now, I'll dive into what crypto assets are, what a crypto economy is, what tokenomics are. I'll, I'll dive into all of that. But I'm going to kind of give up a holistic or philosophical point of view on the subject before we dive in. So, like I said, I was born or studied, I think before most of you were born. And I remember growing up, and all of the movies that were said. 2018, you know, now, had us on Mars, we had robots, we had flying cars, we had all this cool stuff. And here we are in 2018 and we're not on Mars yet. And Elon Musk just said something similar. And society is progressing really quickly, but I think we as humanity can do better. And I strongly believe that blockchain and crypto, meaning cryptocurrencies, but also crypto economics and crypto assets, can move us forward at a faster pace. And I'll explain why. <coughs> also, kind of just jump then, believe that establishing the proper legal framework globally will accelerate that process and work everyone's benefit. So I'd like you to consider that all human progress is accomplished either through doing projects or through processes. This is just an assertion I would like to consider for this presentation. And I can look at the project, and you can look at the project as some sort of human endeavor that has a set goal, it has resources allocated to it, it has a beginning, and it has an end. So an example of a beneficial project, one that helps humanity, might be sequencing the human genome, flying to the moon, flying to Mars, something like that. You can also think that human civilization maintains and advances through processes. So a process, unlike a project, is a recurring or repeating set of steps that avoid some harm or implement some good. So I would hold out that all human progress is based on how quickly and efficiently we can cycle through these beneficial endeavors, how quickly and efficiently we can accomplish projects that help humanity. How quickly and efficiently can we cycle through processes that help humanity? And the more quickly and the more efficiently we can do this, and obviously we're on this, the faster humanity will progress. And then finally, 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 we can get to Mars already. Because you know it's 2018 and we should be on Mars. So let's see what we can do to accelerate humanity's progress. So 
So I'm going to put something else in here. I would say that throughout all human history, and I'm, I know this is like a wall of text, I'll just give it to you verbally, and I feel it makes sense. Throughout all human history, we, our progress has been bedeviled by what I would call systemic restraints, or systemic constraints on getting through these projects and getting through these processes quickly and efficiently. So one issue which is always causing an issue for demands is the ability to, when working on a project, for example, locate and assign resources to that project, and you marshal those resources, then when those resources are assigned to that project, having them be used with maximum efficiency and with maximum speed, and then there's always the part which is when a project ends, you have to pull those resources out and allocate them to something else. The difficulty in doing this efficiently and quickly is one of the constraints on human civilization. Assigning resources, working with them efficiently, and pulling them out. Related to that is we have similar issues with capital, with investment capital. Throughout humanity, we've had problems with quickly investing in projects, quickly pulling out projects, quickly liquidating our investment, and flowing back and forth. And the <coughs> transaction costs or lack of ability to do this quickly prevents us to always, inhibits our ability to always automatically allocate capital or investment in the most efficient way possible. Another core constraint on humanity's ability to progress is our lack of ability to transparently look into and audit the economic relationships between parties. So if you, I'm engaged in an arm's length, closer, thank you. If I'm engaged in an arm's length transaction with another party and I don't necessarily trust them or I don't know who they are, part of what slows down commerce, part of what interferes with human progress is <coughs> traditionally my lack of ability to audit their books, see if they're telling the truth, know if I'm looking at the right set of books, there's always a joke when people keep one set of books for their companies, one for their partner, and one So, that lack of certainty has slowed down commerce and progress. Another constraint or restraint on human progress and growth and ability to quickly do projects and processes is when it comes to currency, the variables caused by inflation, by fluctuations in currency exchange rates, by the uncertainty involved with the banking system. This can be a few things. It can be a systemic issue, like the whole banking system collapsing. It can be the sudden imposition of capital control. It could be a bank. We have this in the US, I don't know if we have it here. That suddenly refuses to let you buy crypto and Coinbase because they won't transfer the money out to your Coinbase account. Does anyone have this here? This one's being very wrong. Oh, that's wrong. And there's my favorite constraint, favorite in the sense that I want to kill it, the wide diversity of global law and regulation, the inconsistent law between jurisdictions, the inconsistent use of language between jurisdictions, imposes a vast cost on the progression of humanity. So I'm working in this crypto world all day long, and the conversations I have are always the same. Do we set up a foundation in zoo? Do we set up something in Gibraltar? Do we go to the Cayman Islands? Do we go to the Canary Islands? So rather than investing in your technology, the paying guys like me to figure out those problems. That's a waste. 
I'd rather not have money to go to Mars. So it is to the detriment of humanity that we have this wide diversity of inconsistent laws in all these different languages. So let's do something about that. Good news, the regional law of here. Blockchain and crypto can, especially when the laws are done correctly, <coughs> massively alleviate these issues or remove them entirely. Issues like the allocation of capital, the ability to liquidate or move your transactions around, all this good stuff. So let's get some realistic near-term examples, things that are already here or close to them. And one thing I also want to point out is that every time you make emerging projects more efficient, there's a nice compounding interest of that. Because if you become just slightly more efficient, then that means you can acquire the next round of resources and speed more efficiently, and it sort of snowballs. Okay, so what's some methods by which we can alleviate those constraints on progress and growth? I put out Pablo. Pablo's favorite thing is tokenizing assets. Like I mentioned, there's a global problem in human history of how do you quickly identify resources that are going to assign to a project? How do you get them over to that project? How do you have them work efficiently in that project? And then how do you extract them once you're done? You tokenize assets. In other words, you create software representations of assets. That process becomes much easier. You can move them at the speed of light. You can move resources around. When resources are assigned to a project, not being actually exploited, you can reassign them to another project. Things begin to operate much quicker. And this is all based on blockchain and tokenization. The issue I mentioned where you have lack of trust in each other's records, or the inability to audit, which of course creates an opening for corruption, naturally gets resolved with blockchain. Because you have a completely reliable and accessible record of transactions. So when swipe adopted, all the money that was being wasted on audits and lawsuits and demanding to see the books goes away. And all that those resources and all that effort can be reallocated. And let me throw in here that this slide deck I can email to everyone. So if you have people taking pictures, I'll just email them. Public property will be on LinkedIn. It's an open license. The like I mentioned, another constraint on human progress is that diversity of currencies and the diversity of banking systems and inflation. Now, of course, there's a very wide variety of crypto and assets out there, and the prices are changing all the time. But we are getting to the edges of a universal global currency that's not under the control of one specific government or bank that is inflated, or at least new currencies emitted, at a predictable <coughs> mathematical rate. Once that's actually the case, there's going to be a huge benefit in terms of planning and allocating. You know that currency is going to appreciate or inflate the rate. You no longer have to hedge the things you currently do to control for those variables. And again, also my favorite. Crypto is forcing governments to align their laws in <coughs> unexpected ways. So before crypto, 
when governments would try to synchronize their laws, they would engage in these 40 year negotiations like the GATT agreement, or they did many other countries, or at least I know some of them. Um, those the US Iraq So it was hard to get all these countries acting to coordinate their, their systems. What's happening now is crypto and blockchain is so revolutionary, it provides such a competitive advantage that it's forcing countries to synchronize and pay attention to each other in ways that they never did before. It's kind of interesting to watch. Also, as, as was mentioned earlier, it's sort of an adapting that's produced a good result. The fact that crypto lends itself to money laundering and perhaps tax evasion is driving far more coordination and information sharing between governments than was ever there before. So we're getting the beginnings of a synchronized global law. So behind all these, I would argue, tokenizing assets, having good audible records, having a common medium of exchange, having global law is law. Law kind of is the pathway to all these things. So I will dig into the de definition of a crypto asset and then I'll bring this all together. Here's a sort of a theoretical basis for approaching crypto assets and then looking at the economics behind it and where that can lead us in terms of law. So I want you to consider that for our purposes, the word economy can refer to the wealth or resources or the functions relating thereto for either a political or spatial entity or a concise entity. So what does that mean? <laughs> An example of a political or spatial entity would be when you refer to, say, the EU economy. It's obviously political unit. You can say the German economy, which is a spatial unit. Then you can get into sort of conceptual units of an economy, such as the black economy, or the black market economy. There's no place known as the black market, but it's a conceptual monitor. And then you get sort of more esoteric meanings, such as the world of Warpath economy. Does anyone play Warpath? Oh, really? <coughs> um, the world, you know, the world of Warpath has an economy. It's conceptual. It's not a place. I'd also, it's also virtual. And there's a great deal of applicability or similarity between the world of Warpath economy and blockchain economies. So again, the economy refers to the wealth or resources of a country or geographical unit, or political or geographical unit, and or a conceptual entity. Economics refers to the study of economies and, this can get very applicable with crypto assets, the analysis of how participants in an economy act and why, either as individuals or as groups. Now, it's been shown again and again and again that participants in an economy always act in the long term according to their self-perceived interests. Now, everyone has different self-perceived interests. Some people want money, some people want love, some people want vacations, so everyone's different. But it's been shown again and again and again that over the long term, people always act in their own self-interest, however they define it. So you can say that, really, economics or the study of economy is a study of how different participants in an economy act under different sets of circumstances and under different incentives. 
Incentives are either a reward if someone acts a certain way, or a penalty if they don't act a certain way. And this is all going to link together. So, this blockchain and crypto revolution has resulted in the issuance of a variety of tokens or crypto asset types. And this is sort of a zoology, for lack of a better word, of the common token types that are out there and their legal categorization. So, I'll go through this right now. And I'm sort of interchangeably using tokens and coins. The first category of tokens is what can be referred to as a currency token or a payment token. Uh, FINRA, the Swiss regulator, just came out with this definition as well. And a classic example would be Bitcoin. That's essentially a currency token or a currency coin. Now, I want you to notice that payment tokens or currency tokens really come in two forms. There's tokens that are meant for external payment that are not being used within a certain environment. So Bitcoin's a good example of that. There's no secret Bitcoin service that you can pay Bitcoin to and get some other result out of it. It's just purely for transmitting value or money between external parties. You can compare, you can compare that to a blockchain platform, which is a marketplace, where you have a currency that's produced within that marketplace. So you notice that currencies really break down into two types. For example, World of Warcraft is the second type. Now, World of Warcraft tokens, back in the day, could theoretically be exchanged outside of the environment for money, but its primary use was within the environment between the parties. So from a legal perspective, the world generally agrees that currency tokens are not securities. In other words, if you're issuing or conducting business in currency tokens, you don't need to follow the SEC, you don't have to need to follow the money, you don't need to follow the mask, all of those. The primary issue with currency tokens the world over is anti-money laundering and every customer and related issues such as bank secrecy. Because currency tokens can in fact replace, act in place of money and they're somewhat anonymous if you're using the blockchain. So that's the first category of tokens. The second category of tokens which is getting more and more useful are tokens that Refer to as asset tokens, they usually stand in the place of another token. So, what's an example of that? Now, gold, we all generally agree has value, but gold has a lot of problems if you want to use it day to day. It's heavy, uh, you get robbed from it. If you're carrying it around, you get robbed, you have a problem. It's hard to spend anonymously, and also it's very hard to change from gold bars. I'm going to try it right there. So gold, even though it's valuable, has problems because of its physical nature. It's difficult to use. There's a huge advantage that's available when you take things like this that have value, that have use, that have a function, and you tokenize them. So that when you're manipulating them or using them in a financial system, rather than working with actual physical gold itself, you're working with the software token that represents the gold. Now all of a sudden you've just taken that bar of gold that has value, that has problems, and you remove all the problems associated with using it. You can easily make change if you have a token. You can easily transmit it over a distance if you have a token. You're not going to walk down the street and get robbed of your tokenized gold. So these are generally referred to as asset tokens. 
The idea is that you have a software token that by itself is not worth anything, but there's something called a reference object or a reference asset that sort of points you and acting in place of. Now, these can get kind of complex, and this is where global regulation and national regulation gets to kick in. It's kind of obvious when a token represents some gold, what's going on. What gets a little bit more exotic <coughs> is when that token doesn't re represent something physical, but it represents some sort of legal object. For example, the right of first refusal on a house, or futures contracts, or interest on a note without the actual note itself. Those get a little bit more exotic. They're subject to different degrees of regulation. I'll make a broad statement, which is a token which represents an asset generally is legally characterized in the same manner as the underlying asset. So for, for the most part, gold is a commodity. It's not a security, it's not a service. So when you tokenize gold, in general, the token itself will be treated as a commodity, in general. When you have tradable stock in some company, and you're tokenizing that stock, those tokens will generally be treated in the same manner as a security. So that's how we get sliced that. What gets interesting is when you have a token that represents hybrid or compound objects. Suppose you have a token that represents gold and a stock. How do you treat that? What do you do? That's when things get exciting. The next category of tokens that we see a lot of are tokens that are issued for the purpose of raising capital. Now, this falls into two categories. There's token raising or capital raising that's sort of a proxy for the traditional method. What does that mean? It means that, say I have a company, and suppose I'm going to issue 100 shares of stock in exchange for capital that I'm going to use to operate my company. Rather than doing it in the old days, you know, like a year ago, of giving people paper certificates or an electronic record of the fact that they own the stock in my ledger, I can just merely give them a software token in lieu of that. So I would call that a tokenized security. That's obviously a security. What we're seeing now, and I think what's going to be the huge wave, if you want to get ahead of something, now's the time. What's happening now is when you have not tokenized security, but security tokens. In other words, companies traditionally, when they raise capital, when they raise investment money, they would either issue equity or they would issue debt. They would either issue shares, bonds, preferred stock, loans, whatever. No, assets, liabilities. That was the traditional way of doing it. What's beginning to show up around the world, and if you're going to focus on anything that's going to go where the train has not yet left the station and it's not yet moving fast, but it's about to, to use a prior analogy, it is security tokens. So what, what those are, what they represent is a bundle of economic rights that do not strictly correlate with either equity or debt. For example, it could be profit sharing interest in the company. It could be some sort of intellectual property right coupled with the profit, with the profit sharing interest. They're infinitely designable. They're somewhat like derivatives. But there's, they offer a huge amount of flexibility and planning. And when these really take off and there's liquid markets for them, you're going to see capitalism on fire. Because you're going to have a, a level of granularity with investments that has not been available before. Now, there's another kind of capital raising strategy that involves tokens. 
That's when you have a software platform where the platform itself has use. So Bitcoin as a platform, the platform itself doesn't have use other than transmitting Bitcoin. But you can take order work out, which is my favorite example, but more recently Filecoin. And the whole reason you use Filecoin is not because the tokens are so valuable, theoretically, but because you want to use that network to store your files. Because like the internet, the interplanetary file system, IPFS, you know, theoretically you're buying those tokens in order to use the platform. Now suppose you have an idea for a platform that you haven't built it yet. And rather than going to a VC and signing away 95% of your company and losing it all within a year, you say, I'm gonna do an ICO, I'm gonna do an initial coin offering. So to raise the money that will allow you, or raise the capital that will allow you to build this platform, you can do an ICO, you can sell tokens now. That's a different form of capital raising than what I mentioned before. You're not raising capital and just happen to be using tokens. You're actually selling the tokens that will be used on your platform later, usually at a discount, to get the money with which to build the platform. Now, take the first example. All over the world, when you're selling tokens for money, you're just going to use your regular business, that's clearly a security. Every country in the world agrees on that. Where there's a significant global disagreement is what happens if you have a platform that's not yet built, just not yet, you sell tokens to raise the money to build the platform, and then later on, once the platform is built, the tokens will be usable. In other words, they're going to end up as what's known as a utility token. There's a global disagreement right now about whether before that platform is usable, the token is a security or a utility. So the US, um, I don't know if you saw it, February 6th, the chairman of the SEC and the chairman of the Commodities, uh, Commodities and Exchange Commission were sitting in front of Congress. And, by the way, this, this apparently got seen all over the world. I have friends in Ukraine and everywhere else that were watching this hearing. It kind of blew my mind. So there's a senator we have from Massachusetts, um, Elizabeth Warren. And her main question during the main session had nothing to do with crypto, had nothing to do with Washington. She was yelling at the commissioner of the SEC about IGOs in general. And you got really testing, you can kind of feel it. Then they go to overtime, and the senator, in her overtime questions, starts grilling the chairman of the SEC about are these token securities, and they're being done in anticipation of building, or are they not securities? And his answer was, I haven't seen a single ICO that was not like an IPO and did not involve securities. That's what he said. Now think about that. He is making a blanket statement that if you sell a security, sorry, if you sell a token before the platform is built, it's a security. That is not the worldwide consensus right now. Switzerland kind of believe that. Gibraltar doesn't believe that. The state of Wyoming in the United States doesn't believe that. They would say you're merely pre-selling software licenses at a discount. So this is an area of global uncertainty that I think we should all resolve. The, let's see here. And of course, if, you're, if you have a working platform, like truly working, and you don't sell access using dollars or euros, but you sell access using tokens, and those tokens are immediately usable on the platform and it's real, that's not a security. No one in the world believes that's a security. It's probably more in the nature of a software license. And it's taxed as such. And I'll do a little aside right now. In the US, and I understand that this is the case globally, 
when you issue equity or you issue debt, in other words, you issue stock or you issue bonds, you don't pay tax on the money you raise. It's a capital transaction. In general, you sell goods or services, and you sell that in excess of what it costs you to make those goods or services. Goods or services. That's when you owe tax. So consider how that idea ripples through these different token types. Let me take the last one. Suppose you have a working platform, and you sell tokens that allow you to access the platform, and it costs you one penny to make, what do you call it, hundreds of euros? Help me out. Send on that's fine. Last time I heard it's Okay, so fine. Suppose it costs you one cent to make a token, right? And then you sell those tokens for one euro. Right? If it's not a security, that would, you just make 99 cents a profit. Now, depending on your jurisdiction or where you're selling to, you're going to owe some level of tax on that money. So think about that. If you're selling tokens that are securities, in other words, they're money for your regular business or in order to build a platform. Security transactions generally over, over are not taxed. If I sell stock, I don't pay money on the money I got for stock. But consider the example where you're taking money to build a platform and then the platform gets built. Right? So if you held off issuing the tokens or you issue something else that then converted those tokens, then taxes do. So you have all these exciting Okay, so I will keep on speaking forward. Um, so keep in mind, of course, not all blockchain, not all blockchain platforms have related tokens. Blockchain is just a database. There's no requirement that you tokenize it. And if you tokenize it, there's no requirement that you then sell the tokens or make them exchangeable. But most blockchain platforms, the ones you hear about, the ones doing ICOs, either have a currency token, or they have a utility token, or they have both. Now what they really need is they have their own economies. Within that platform, there's an economy. Just like in World of Warcraft or any other online game, many players, there's an economy. It's very similar to that. The study of an economy within this environment is called tokenomics. Token plus economics. Right? So recall our definition of economics. And tokenomics is not just the use of tokens in the, in the platform, but it's an analysis of the design of the platform. Who gets the tokens? What are the price of tokens? What are the exchange mechanisms for the tokens? How do those tokens control behavior? That's tokenomics. And I would argue that the key to understanding any blockchain-based platform is analyzing the tokenomics. If you analyze the tokenomics, you get to the legal essence of what this thing is. Okay. So you can say tokenomics is the study of blockchain platform participant incentives as affected by the design of the platform's economy. I want to point out here that in normal life, you don't generally have the opportunity to design markets. They kind of just give it to us, or Earth comes with them, or they exist before we were born. What's neat is you're kind of creating these little smaller national economies every time you create a blockchain economy where you can make your own rules. It's like your own personal matrix. All right, now we're kind of climbing the ladder. This brings us to crypto economics. So the thought of Tarn, of course, is one that main developer, so the main developer of Ethereum, and his pet project is crypto economics. What crypto economics is, 
or what it involves is the use of cryptographic tools, cryptographic designs and mechanisms to incentivize behavior within a platform. So he's all about setting incentives and setting penalties. There's nothing stopping people in here, if you're a Bitcoin miner, from trying to fork the Bitcoin blockchain and give yourself unlimited amounts of Bitcoin. But your incentives and penalties do not align with that course of action because no one else is going to follow you down that path. You'll waste a ton of money and you'll be off the main track. So he's, and that's by design, of course. So he's all about setting up environments that incent proper behavior and penalize what they deem as improper behavior. And so securing this economy involves cryptography. You want to make sure the transaction can actually happen. The parties you're dealing with are who they say they are. But securing the economy going forward involves incentives. You want to disincent people from cheating and you want to incent them to play by the rules. Okay, now here you go. What the heck is a crypto asset? So we kind of, kind of went from economy all the way up. So this is what I feel is a useful definition. I say a crypto asset is a token or other piece or other cryptographic software object perhaps a coin, which exists and functions in the context of a blockchain or a functionally equivalent database. Okay, you do not need to use the blockchain to avoid double spend and all these other issues. It just has to be an extremely useful tool. Right. So the term proof asset is a subset. Am I up? Well, okay. Yeah, actually, I'm going to say this. Blockchain and crypto have the abilities to, like I mentioned, set free humanity and allow us to progress faster and quicker by getting rid of those structural constraints. So I suggest that when we have international law and we design this new system, that we abide by certain principles, that we recognize the benefit that blockchain and crypto can provide that we understand that these new products will be artificial intelligence enabled and have functionality beyond the original. And that the use and value of these crypto assets will be enhanced by standardizing legal systems. And that companies or countries that do not embrace this will be left behind and will lose competitive advantage. And this might kick her at the end. I want you to think about something also. If these economies that we're building through crypto economics and tokenomics, are designed to reward behavior that they feel is good and punish behavior that they feel is bad. And they get big enough and they get artificial intelligence control and they get to learn how to tweak these incentives and penalties so that people are very much aligned with them, then it's possible we may lose an element of freedom. So I'd say if you're looking at the law in this area, I focus on liberating these assets and not being overly concerned by securities, commodities, this, that, and other, I would instead focus on coming up with a structure that services humanity and does not take away our freedom of choice. And I'll be happy to talk about that at length and provide that and everything else. Thank you.